We want to know, what do you think of podcasts? What do you want to hear about? Share your opinion and you could win a $100 Amazon gift card. Visit amsa.org slash survey to take our brief survey so that we can help you grow as a physician in training. Were you ready to dish out $2,000 and upwards for test prep materials? Maybe, but perhaps you came from a background that couldn't afford such an expense. Welcome to the AMSA AdLib Podcast, where you'll hear from med students and experts alike. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. When you prepared or are preparing to take the MCAT exam for entrance to medical school, there's a different standard set from the very beginning. While some students are shelling out between $2,000 and $3,000, or maybe more in some cases, others find themselves without access to test prep materials at all, or possibly buying older materials, which leads to outdated studying in comparison to their peers. Joining us on the podcast this week is Joey Johnson, AMSA's current president-elect and previously the student editor for AMSA's The New Physician magazine. Joey sat down with AdLib's Pete Thompson to walk us through some of the biases and barriers behind the med school admissions process. This episode originally aired in October 2015, so references may be made to earlier dates. Here's Pete. Hi, I'm Pete Thompson. I'm senior producer at AMSA's AdLib program. I'm speaking with Joey Johnson, who is the student editor of the New Physician magazine, about his feature story in the October uh, 2015 issue. Before he was student editor, Joey was a contributor to the magazine. Your most recent feature in the October issue uh, addresses you're addressing bias and barriers. And for the people who have not experienced those personally or who might be sort of naively unaware, you give a couple examples from personal experience about biases and barriers that people might encounter. Can you walk us through one of those? Sure. Um, Two kind of examples come to mind. For one, I remember the SATs, for instance, all high schoolers have to take it. And of course, this evolves some, as well as the other example I'm going to speak about in a moment, the MCAT test. They've both evolved, but I remember the, the SAT in particular weighing so heavily on the verbal portion. And also before that, I remember being younger, taking like the Iowa test of basic skills, those types of things. A lot of them weigh heavily on like comp- reading comprehension and verbal reasoning, those types of skills. Well, for instance, let's say a minority growing up, um, my mom cannot read or write very well. Um, there are other minorities who might have a single mother household, something of that nature. Um, and then just in general, there's not as many, I guess you would say, college graduates sometimes in certain communities. And so you don't grow up hearing some of the basic words that are almost taken for granted as being part of your basic language. Um, certain words that you would hear spoken at at more at households that both parents might have went to college, you know, would be expected to be, to be part of that child's repertoire, you know. But when you grow up in a a household of more low income or, I mean, not just minorities, um, but anyone whose parents have not had those types of college or collegiate experiences, they're not going to have the same basic language set from the very beginning anyway. So from the very beginning, when they're taking the same test as someone from a household whose both their parents have gone to college, then they're not going to perform from the onset anyway. There's a different bar that is set, if you will. And then when you add that along with studying, the parents who have both been in college are going to encourage the kids to study a little bit more. For instance, my wife and I, you know, I believe 
are able to assist our daughter a little bit more than either one of us were able to get growing up, and especially once we got to the high school stage, not because our parents didn't want to, but just simply because they had not had that experience at that level or at that stage of thinking, so they didn't know how to sometimes. So that's one example of when two kids will sit down and take the same test. Um, There's just a different initial set factor, if you will. Now, once you go to something like the MCAT, which is the medical college admissions test, I remember some of my friends might have spent $2,000 or $2,500 for test prep materials, at the very least $500 or $1,000. I didn't have that kind of money. I was low income, and so I I was buying materials that were sometimes five years old, um, even more. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say how old, but I was having to buy older materials, materials that the library was going to discard just so I could get a practice on the way that the questions would be asked. Well, needless to say, from year to year, the thing changes. And in five years, there's a drastic change that typically takes place with those sorts of tests. So by the time I had sat down, my studying was much out, much more outdated than some of my peers. And so again, from the beginning, we had a different standard that was set initially. And so it puts you at a great disadvantage, I guess is the best way I would sum that up. As part of a feature you wrote for us in our previous October issue, which is the October 2014 issue, uh, you wrote about the need for resources to help minority students at an earlier stage in their education, as at least in, in sort of at the undergraduate level. Um, what resources are lacking, really? That's a great question. For instance, Um, I interviewed the director of admissions at Morehouse School of Medicine. This is one thing I didn't put in the interview just because of space. It did not afford for me to be able to put the entire interview in it. But we both discussed about when you have a minority student, sometimes just the basic knowledge of applying for things like financial aid or even knowing where, where to look for financial aid. I know that sounds silly, but it's true. You go into admissions you ask some questions, you don't think to sit down with financial aid and actually go through it with them, you assume that it's taken care of. Um, Even if you sat down with a financial aid officer, would you know what questions to ask? You know, those are the types of things that come up. And I know when I worked at the community college as an admissions advisor, as an admissions counselor, and also I worked a little in financial aid, when someone got popped or pulled their application for FAFSA got pulled so that it would be for a more, I guess you would say, a deeper review because they randomly will pull applications for that. Well, my goodness, for some students, they just went ahead and withdrew and would come back the next semester because they didn't really want to deal with all of the documentation they would have to get. They had no idea about it. And it's, Now, that's not to say, or we should, we definitely should not assume that there was anything funny going on you know, as you dug deeper, because oftentimes it wasn't, I would work with the student and they would be, you know, ready in plenty of time for the next semester. But those are just some examples. Now, if you have parents who have been through college, they can help you through that a little bit more. They have copies of the tax statements, those sorts of things. Um, Without singling anyone out, there are several situations that I remember when I would talk to the student's family and the parents would say, I don't know where my taxes are, you know, from last year. I don't have that information. How do I get it? You know, those types of issues. Um, Some other issues about resources. When you're looking at applying for medical school, 
I had to learn the hard way and did not know that some schools have like a pre-med advisory committee that you can go to someone and they will do mock interviews or they will sit down and go through the application process with you and tell you that different schools look for different things in your application packet. I had no idea about these things. And so that's something I incorporated when I became the minority achievement counselor at the community college in between my graduation of um, in undergrad school and before I started medical school, I made sure we did mock interviews. I made sure that I went over different school options with them and talked to them especially about financial aid. Those are just those kinds of issues that, again, you assume if a student has made it here to apply for college and definitely is enrolled in college, that they've explored options in financial aid or they know where to look to go to for the help in those questions. And you assume that they know the questions they need to ask, but those things just aren't so in most cases. One other example I can think of is when we took a group of students from the community college over to Morehouse School of Medicine. It helped for them to talk to someone who was on the other side of the table, if you will, the director of admissions, for them to see someone who is a professional and to talk with them and see the types of things that he sees from his side of the table, because a lot of times they never get that type of perspective. And so once again, having a resource of someone you could talk to and say, what do you look at when someone when you're interviewing someone? What types of things are you looking for them to say? What things are you noticing about their body language? Those little details, I mean, that can make a huge difference in giving someone confidence when they go into certain situations. In that same article, the October 2014 article, you called for more physicians from minority backgrounds to offer shadowing opportunities. And in the most recent feature, you spoke about the short supply of mentors for black men in medicine. Uh, to what extent does that shortage affect how black men or, or youth even um, consider medicine as a career path? Yes, I think it's, it speaks volumes when an article like the JAMA Internal Medicine article that I referenced in the October 2014 issue of TMP came out, it talks about a study where minority physicians are practicing and they see more than half of the minority patients in that area. And so that lets you know right there that there's an there's a certain awkwardness or uncomfortableness with patients who are minorities with going to other people that are not minorities. Now, it seems to me, from speaking from seeing kind of both sides of things, that it's not that they don't want to go to a Caucasian physician, if you will, but they don't feel comfortable doing it, per se. I know in some of the experiences that I have had, there's been certain assumptions that have kind of driven me the other direction of saying, wow, you know, I don't want to go back to him because I'm embarrassed to explain my situation because he just made some assumptions like I could help them, like I could, like I had options. Um, I know one instance is when I went to a particular physician and he had some Ivy League plaques on his wall and I was asking his opinion about me going to medical school and he found out I was going to a community college and he kind of chuckled and, you know, said I wouldn't get in. And so the fact that he just assumed I had some other option, I didn't. You know, when I started medical school, um, I had to quit my full-time job. I had a wife, I had a kid, and I had no idea of what I was getting into. And I was coming to him for assistance, and he chuckled and, you know, told me I had done it the wrong way. And so those types of assumptions, you know, after a while, after you hear those so many times in life, they can somewhat be damaging, you know. 
because you know that they're in the backs of people's heads, and then you start to wonder, well, when I go to my med school interview, are they going to be thinking the same thing, you know, kind of laughing inside and saying, oh, you will not get in, you know, why are you here, you know, but, you know, those those are the type of silly things that play in your mind, and you start applying them to different people. I think it's important to have a supply of mentors of black men in medicine because there is a difference when you see other people that look like you that have been through similar struggles because you feel that you can open up and you don't feel as vulnerable because there's a greater chance that they've been through some type of struggle or have experienced some type of struggle. Now, there's nothing wrong with there being a white physician that has struggled, but the problem is you don't know as a minority who those physicians are. And so I guess a better way of saying it even to help the situation is if the white physicians who felt comfortable talking with minority men who are wanting to be physicians would put themselves out there and state, hey, you know, I am here to assist anyone who is wanting to become a physician and go into certain minority uh, majority schools or certain communities and just kind of let it be known, you know? I'm not asking that they go out and just announce themselves like, hi, you know, minority medicine is my mission, but I do think that there is a certain effort that's going to need to take place for those who do want to mentor, because otherwise, it's a scary world out there. I mean, even at this stage as a third-year medical student, my white friends who are in medical school are scared to ask certain questions to surgeons or to their preceptor physicians. So imagine being a minority who has gotten shot down and has it in the back of your mind that you're going to get laughed at if you ask the wrong questions anyway, and you already don't belong there. It's like there's a proverbial glass ceiling that's right there above your head that you can't rise above because you haven't seen other people that look like you. There's only three, there's less than 3% actually of physician, practicing physicians who are black males. And so if you're a black male going into medicine, there's just not many options for a mentor that you know of or that you feel comfortable going and asking. So given a shortage of, of mentors and the amount of time it takes to make a significant change in the physician workforce, I mean, are there alternatives in the meantime in terms of mentorship? Yes, yes, there definitely are. Um, you do not have to be a physician yourself in order to be a mentor for someone who wants to be a physician. And I'll give you a perfect example. At our community college where I worked, the person who jump-started, spearheaded, and managed the minority program, which started off as a a division of the Student African American Brotherhood, and then we had gained uh, many Latino students as well, so we changed the name to Brother to Brother to more accurately reflect the group because it was a group of brothers banding together and holding one another accountable to rise up academically. Uh, The person who started all that and spearheaded it and managed it was the Director of Humanities. And out of that group, which is the group that we took to Morehouse School of Medicine, two students got accepted to Morehouse School of Medicine. And so in that way, you know, I came in at the end of that group, but he had already had them on the right track and doing well in school. And the reason is because he took the time to help them with the basic things I was discussing earlier. What questions do you ask about financial aid? What happens if you get pulled for verification of your FAFSA packet? Um, You know, what steps do you need to take to get an A in these classes? Those sorts of things. Where do you look to, to get credible sources? Those types of things that might slip through the cracks even 
while we learn that in certain classes for building up to get to the stage of applying for medical school, you know, um, it just takes a couple of times for stuff to stick, you know what I mean? And so he was there as a constant reminder and also as encouragement. And sometimes just having someone believing in you is all that it, it takes. And so that is one way that with the shortage of mentors that are physicians, we can definitely have alternatives. Just someone who cares, someone who you know, cares enough to see where you are in your walk academically and then come there and meet you on that path and help you get to the next level. How did you personally become interested in medicine? Um, did you did you have mentorship, and, and how did you find it? No, for me, um, when I was in middle school, um, I, I remember thinking I would like to be a physician. I remember that. And then I started noticing that some of my friends had family physicians they went to. I thought that was a pretty cool idea. My wife and I, neither one had a family physician until we were married, had a kid, and I had insurance. So I I do remember thinking that, and I remember that passion just continued to grow. I started working at 15 years old at a nursing home, and I would see the physician come in and take care of the patients, and they looked forward to the, you know, when the physician came to talk to them, even if he just reassured them everything was all right. And then as I, as I came out of that, that atmosphere of working in a nursing home because I had to make more money, I worked at the factory, and I started... I started realizing, man, I really, I really missed that environment. I went and worked at a mental health facility, and my passion grew even stronger. And that's when I knew, okay, you know, this is this is what I felt before I worked at the factory. This is where I'm meant to be. This is what I'm meant to go into. And it's just grown since then. And so for me, there wasn't a particular epiphany or aha moment. You know, I'm going to be a doctor. It was just one of those things that was a spark, and it continued to grow over time, and just be more and more fervent. I don't really think that I had a a particular mentor, which I don't know why I was so resilient, but um, I've just always grown up working hard, and I guess I've seen, you know, I've had those, those times when you go to the refrigerator and there's nothing in there, and you don't know when you're going to get it, or, you know, the lights get cut out, or the water gets cut off, or you're trying to choose between, you know, heck, forget cable, you know, you're talking about a light bill or a water bill and hope the other doesn't get cut off before you get the money. Those types of things have always driven me to work hard. And so I think once I finally did get into school and my wife kind of made me get back into school, then um, I, I took that same drive that I had. That was one thing I enjoyed at the factory because the harder you work, the more you got paid, you know, and so I was in heaven with that or so I thought. But when I got back in school, I realized that I could apply that same principle and same work ethic. And it took a little longer, but you start seeing the fruits of the labor on down the road. So for me, I think just because I had that passion and that fear of going broke or, or you know, having a kid and having a wife and not being able to support them, that fear drove me. But not everyone has that fear or those experiences to draw from. So I think a mentor is a necessity for some of them. If you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe to AMSA AdLib through iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the show, please give us a rating in the iTunes store. AMSA AdLib is brought to you by the American Medical Student Association. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. This episode was produced by Pete Thompson and myself. Special thanks to Joey Johnson for joining us. Joshua Caulfield is the show's executive producer, and Dr. Kelly Tibbert is AMSA's national president.
Are you keeping your creativity alive in med school? Tune in next week to hear about balancing your creative passions with your medical training. We hope you enjoyed the episode and thank you for listening.